Hebrews chapter 7 verses 1 to 10, part 2. The nineteenth talk in a series on the book of Hebrews was presented by Jack Crabtree on January 3rd, 2016 at Reformation Fellowship. The copyright for this recording is held by Gutenberg College, Inc., 2016. Gutenberg College is a non-profit organization, and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. Handout number 9, Translation, Installment 2016, number 1, accompanies this talk. We're back in the book of Hebrews, chapter 7. We looked briefly at the first 10 verses of chapter 7 last week, the famous passage about Melchizedek. I want to spend a little bit of time reviewing what we looked at last week, and then I want to dive into some of the particulars and the details. This is very difficult. If you will remember back a year ago when we were back in chapter 6, remember what Paul said in chapter 6. He said, I've got some things I want to tell you, but I'm concerned that you are so hard of hearing that you won't be able to follow. And I fear that we live in days very much like what Paul feared was true when he wrote the letter. This is a very subtle argument. It's a very difficult argument to follow. If we're not interested, we're not going to follow because we're just frankly not all that interested. And that's Paul's concern is that his readers won't be interested enough to stay with him. So we have our work cut out for us, for those of us who are interested, who believe that what Psalm 110 has to say and what Paul is telling us is the case out of Psalm 110, we're really going to need to apply ourselves to understand the nature of his argument. So last week I focused primarily on the reasons why I reject the one traditional interpretation of Hebrews 7 that sees Melchizedek as a Christophany, and a Christophany is, that I'm not sure anyone has ever clearly defined it, but as I would, at least in my childhood, I would have assumed that a Christophany is when the divine being who became Jesus in the incarnation, in other words, the second person of the Trinity, according to Orthodox Christian theology, that the second person of the Trinity came down before the incarnation and appeared in the form of a human being before he actually showed up and became incarnate as Jesus of Nazareth. So it's a preview of coming attractions kind of appearance, and that that's what Melchizedek is. If you look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Dead Sea Scrolls look at Melchizedek as a kind of divine, angelic, superhuman kind of being who is a big deal in their eschatology. But Paul doesn't do anything with that in the book of Hebrews, although that was probably current at the time that Paul is writing this. He's not dealing with it. And contrary to what some people say, I don't even think he's rebutting it. He's not even interested in it. He's got an entirely different interpretation of Psalm 110 and prophetic eschatology, and he's zeroing in, focusing on what he understands the prophets to be saying. He's not really rebutting anything here. As I have argued, his concern throughout the whole book, and especially we're at the heart, we're in the heart of his argument for why it makes sense 
that Jesus the Messiah was crucified. Why does that make any sense? And as we looked at last year, we can appreciate the problem that they would have had for that. You look at the prophets and that claims the Messiah is coming. And when the Messiah comes, he's going to establish the kingdom of God and everything will be made new. It'll be like a new heavens and a new earth. It's going to be this incredible thing when the Messiah comes. Well, nothing prepares you in any sort of cursory reading of the prophets. Nothing prepares you for a Messiah to come and be humiliated, held in contempt, defeated, tortured, crucified, and made dead by the Romans. That makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. So what Paul needs to do for these Jews that he's writing to who are beginning to rethink whether Jesus really is the Messiah, he's going to have to try to make plausible, make compelling, make believable for them that his death on the cross was completely and utterly consistent with God's purposes. It's what we should have expected. It's what we had to expect. And that's what he's trying to do, and he's using Psalm 110 as the springboard for doing that. So I basically offered one reason last week why I don't think the interpretation of Melchizedek being a Christophany made any sense, and that is it would be a very bizarre and strained reading of Genesis 14, if that's a Christophany. What I didn't mention last week that I should have is, also, if Paul is presenting Melchizedek as a Christophany, how does that advance his argument in the book of Hebrews? Okay, so Melchizedek was a Christophany. Paul, what's that have to do with anything? (laughs) Okay, I grant you, that was a Christophany. What's that have to do with whether Jesus of Nazareth, who died on the cross, is the Messiah or not? How does that help? How does that convince me of anything? It's totally irrelevant. It would be completely beside the point. And yet, this is right, this is the heart of his argument for why it is that Jesus dying on the cross was completely compatible with him being the Messiah. So there's another reason why interpreting Melchizedek as a Christophany, as Paul understanding Melchizedek to be a Christophany, makes absolutely no sense here. And then finally, and I did allude to this last week, a third reason is it completely ignores the structure of Paul's argument. Paul's argument, it gets lost in the formatting and the translation of our English translations. But when you really understand what he's doing, this is a very well-organized and tight argument. And he's told us, I'm going to tell you about what Psalm 110 was talking about when it said, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. I'm going to talk to you about that. He interrupted that by saying, but I'm afraid you're not going to follow me. You have become so slow to hear, so disobedient, so rebellious, so blinded by your own concerns and your lack of concern for truth that I'm not sure you'll hang in there with me. So he interrupted himself. But back in chapter 5, he told us up front, that's what I want to do, is I want to explore the meaning of Psalm 110. Finally now, after chapter 6 and chapter 7, he says, as he told us, but I'm going to go ahead anyway. Even though I'm afraid you might be slow to hear, I'm going to go ahead anyway. And that's chapter 7, the part that we just talked about. So if we ignore the fact that he told us, I'm talking about Psalm 110, then we can make it a Christophany. But he's told us what he's doing explicitly, clearly, without any question. So all three of those reasons put together, we need a different interpretation. So what is it that he is saying? Well, here are the critical points. 
in the first 10 verses of chapter 7, Paul is trying to explore and explain to us, he's trying to exegete and interpret it for us, the poetic symbol that David created in Psalm 110. Now, hear me carefully, that David created. Paul is interpreting the poetry that is the product of David's poetic imagination. Paul is not discovering this meaning in Genesis 14. Furthermore, David was not discovering this meaning in Genesis 14. Nobody in the picture here is interpreting Genesis 14. David has exploited Genesis 14 for his own purposes, and Paul is trying to track David's thinking. Okay? And that's what we have here in chapter 7 of Hebrews, is Paul trying to track David's thinking when David turned this character Melchizedek into a symbol of some truth that David had grasped through prophetic revelation. And what was the content of that prophetic revelation? The content of that prophetic revelation is the Messiah, when he comes, is going to serve as a priest forever, an eternal priest, another order of priest, a priest above and beyond and completely outside the priesthood that we know under the Mosaic Covenant. There's a whole different kind of priesthood that is going to be served by the Messiah when the Messiah comes. So that's what he's doing. And what does he decide? He decides there are four things about Melchizedek that David exploits in order to combine them into this symbolic representation of the role of the Messiah. One, his name, King of Righteousness, and his role as King of Salem, King of Shalom, that those, the name of his person and the name of his title point to his messianic role, his sovereignty, his kingly role. This is going to be a priesthood that combines his role as Messiah with his role as priest. So he is a Messiah priest. Secondly, he will serve a priestly role that is above, beyond, and outside the priestly role that's established in the Mosaic Covenant. He wouldn't even qualify to be a priest under the Mosaic Covenant. He's from the wrong tribe. He would never be admitted into the priesthood if he were a Jew under the Mosaic Covenant. He doesn't have the right mother or the right father or the right genealogy for that. So this is a different kind of priesthood on a whole different basis, completely different basis from genealogy. He's going to serve a priesthood that is timeless, that transcends history, that transcends historical situation and historical occasion. This is a priesthood, he doesn't put it this way, but I think what he's saying is this is a priesthood that was established before the foundation of the world and transcends history. That's the priesthood that this priest, the Messiah priest, is going to serve. And then finally, he'll serve a priestly role that is of such a nature that he has a status and a role that makes him greater than Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, and greater than any and every descendant of Abraham. Yeah. Okay, so he sees material in the Genesis account that allows him to suggest David was looking at each of these four things and incorporating them together into a symbol of who this Messiah priest was going to be that Psalm 110 is talking about. Now, as I said, 
neither Paul nor David is discovering some kind of hidden meaning in Genesis 14. That's not what's happening. And if we take this as a precedent for that and as a precedent for reading our Old Testament that way, we're going to be led astray. That's not what's going on. David is creating the symbol of Melchizedek out of his creative imagination, and Paul is interpreting the symbol of Melchizedek, a symbol that was created by David. So what's the authority that underlies Paul's argument and his point? It's the authority of the prophetic revelation that David received somehow. Now, we don't know how David received that prophetic revelation. He might have received it directly in the role of a prophet himself. Entirely possible. Or there may have been some prophet like Nathan or somebody else hanging around who received a direct revelation from God who shared that with David, and David is simply giving voice to that prophetic revelation through this poem that he's writing. So Paul's point is appeal to the authority of Psalm 110 as scripture and using the authority of that prophetic revelation embodied in scripture as the basis for the argument that he wants to make. Okay, I'll open it up here eventually, but let me look at some of the problematic details in Hebrews 7, 1 through 10. I want to discuss those and see if we can get those out of the way, and then I'll just ask some of your questions. Let me read it from my translation now, not from the New American Standard, but let me read it from my translation. Now this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, was the one who met up with Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, the one to whom, in fact, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all of his spoils. In the first place, he was, by translation, king of righteousness, and then he was also king of Salem, that is, king of Shalom. He was without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Insofar as he was likened to the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Now observe how great was this man, the one to whom Abraham, though he was the patriarch, gave a tenth of his choicest spoils. Those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priesthood have an instruction in Torah to take a tenth from the people, that is, from their brothers, even though these have come out of the loins of Abraham. But the one whose line of descent does not come from the forefathers of these Levitical priests took a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. Now without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. Now here, on the one hand, mortal men receive tithes, but there it offers testimony that he will live on. And in a manner of speaking, through Abraham, Levi also, the one who receives tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met up with him. Okay, I want to look at some phrases in there that are problematic and need some discussion. In paragraph 32... This would be verse 3 of chapter 7. He says, He was without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Now, I'm going to suggest that we need to look at those separately. That's not one point. That's two points. The first point is he was without father, without mother, without genealogy. The second point is he had neither beginning of days nor end of life, or something had neither beginning of days nor end of life. So I want to look at each of those two separately. In both cases, we need to understand 
the context in which he's making that claim. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, what historical person do you know is without father, without mother, without genealogy? That makes absolutely no sense. And you can see why people want to consider it a Christophany and, and that kind of thing. Of course he had a father. Of course he had a mother. Of course he had a genealogy. But the issue is the next sentence. Insofar as he was likened to the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. That is, the question is not the person of Melchizedek. The issue is the priesthood of Melchizedek. It's with respect to the priesthood of Melchizedek that we have to understand he was without father, without mother, without genealogy. In other words, he didn't have the right mother. He didn't have the right father. He didn't have the right genealogy that would have qualified him to function and serve as a priest. He remains a priest perpetually, even without the right mother, father, and genealogy. So it's his priesthood that is without father, without mother, and without genealogy, not his person. Okay? The same then goes for the next phrase, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Really? Melchizedek is an eternal being? No, no way. David wouldn't be saying that. Paul is not saying that. It's with respect to the priesthood that he has neither beginning of days nor end of life. There is not a beginning of his priesthood, neither is there an end to his priesthood. So it's his priesthood that's without beginning and end, not the person of Melchizedek. Now, what about this redundancy? If he's saying what I'm claiming he's saying, that he didn't have a genealogy that warranted him serving as a priest, why does he have to say without father, without mother, without genealogy? Isn't without genealogy good enough? Or isn't without father good enough? Does a mother even qualify you to be a priest under the Mosaic Covenant? I don't think so. It's your father that matters, not your mother that matters. So why this? I think the redundancy and the extraneous point is for emphasis. It's his way of saying there weren't no way, no how at all that he could ever be construed to be qualified to be a priest under the Mosaic Covenant. Any angle you approach it, any angle you look at it, there was nothing in his heritage that should have qualified him to function as a priest. See, behind this whole thing, and we'll come back to this in a second, but behind this whole thing is the thing that I think it has to strike you in the Genesis account. You've got Abraham, as Paul puts it here, the one who possessed the promises. That's who we're talking about, that Abraham. This dude comes down from the mountains, offers him some food and wine, and he pays tithes to him. Why did Abraham allow that? Why would Abraham respect any kind of intercessory role of this Jebusite, this Canaanite, who just wandered down from the mountains with some food and wine? Why would Abraham respect that? Is there anything in the Genesis account that answers that question? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. He just shows up, and Abraham accepts his role as priest and intercessor on his behalf. And you're left going, Abraham, <laughs> do you know he's a Jebusite? Eventually, you're going to kill Jebusites. You don't respect their role as an intercessor. What on earth are you doing, Abraham? So it's a very striking feature of the account that Abraham makes a choice to deliberately submit to the priestly role of Melchizedek as an intercessor between Abraham and Abraham's God. That's incredible. Well, that's what he's talking about when he says, 
having neither beginning of days nor end of life? Do we have any account in the Genesis account that makes it explicable why Genesis made the choice that he made? Anything at all? And Paul is saying, no, we don't. He just shows up. And this dude who just shows up, Abraham pays tithes to him. And that's what Paul is looking at and saying, see what David was doing? David found this quirky little element in the account, this quirky little feature of the account, and said, that's available to me to turn into a symbol of who the Messiah priest is going to be. Because the Messiah priest is serving a whole different kind of priesthood that doesn't find its meaning and significance in history. It finds its meaning and significance in God's purposes before the foundation of the world, before there was any history at all. It's eternal. It's timeless. It's just a given. It's just a fact. It's just there. Well, that's what the priesthood of the Messiah is going to be like. It's something that was a part of God's purposes before there was any history at all. Okay, now I'm getting ahead of my notes here, but let me add it here. My son last week raised the question with me, well, why is it any more significant that Melchizedek, there's no account of the beginning of Melchizedek's priesthood, nor the end of his priesthood. There's no account giving to the beginning of the king of Sodom's kingship, and there's no account giving of the king of Sodom's the end of his kingship. Why is one any more significant than the other? Well, I think I've just explained why. Abraham didn't pay tithes to the king of Sodom. There is nothing about the behavior of Abraham in relationship to these other characters who just sort of come into the account and are mentioned incidentally, and and then they're gone, and you don't know where they came from, and you don't know where they went to. It's true. There are a lot of characters in history where you know very little about them, and you don't know where they come from, and you don't know where they go to. But this is not just an incidental character. This is a character that Abraham chose to accept as an intercessor between the God who promised him a blessing and himself. That's not nothing. That's incredibly significant. And I would hope that your intellectual curiosity just craves some kind of explanation for, what are you doing, Abraham? Uh, You know who this guy is? Why are you making this choice? And yet we have no explanation. And I think that's exactly Paul's point. So it's not merely the fact that the account doesn't tell you where somebody came from or where he went to. It's the fact that a character who played such a curious, striking role in the life of the most important person in the history of Israel, that that person, we have no explicable account of where he came from or where he's going to. Okay, let me, one final point here, and then I'll, we'll see what I feel like when I get there. We have to make a distinction between Melchizedek as he is presented by the surviving narrative in Genesis 14, and what I mean by the surviving narrative is the only thing we know about Melchizedek is the story that gets told about him, and Genesis 14 records that story. So if we want to know anything about him, that's the only place we're going to go for information. We have no extra information to draw on. Well, there's the Melchizedek as he's presented in Genesis 14, and then there's the actual Melchizedek who breathed the dust of the Middle East the actual historical person, Melchizedek. We have to make a distinction there. David is not using the actual historical person as a symbol in Psalm 110. 
David is using the Melchizedek of Genesis 14 as a symbol in Psalm 110. Let me see if I can make this a little bit clearer. This will date me, and you may have a very different experience, but I remember in elementary school growing up, we used to hear about Johnny Appleseed. Now, the impression, do you know who Johnny Appleseed is? (laughs) He's not a quarterback for nobody. My impression of Johnny Appleseed, he was supposedly a person in colonial times who went around the eastern seaboard planting apple trees everywhere. Well, the impression that I got of Johnny Appleseed as a child was as a very Tom Bombadil-esque type character, this kind of bizarre, quirky, magical, odd individual who was just probably some kind of idiot savant who just planted apple trees because he was really into apple trees or something like that. But if you try to engage him in conversation, good luck with that. He's just, he's going to be this space cadet who won't be able to carry on an intelligent conversation with you, but he's magical and charming and and all that kind of stuff. Because you and I might share that picture, that impression, that version of Johnny Appleseed, Johnny Appleseed is available to me to use as a symbol of something that I might want to symbolize him for. Love of nature, or I don't know, some, we'll start some ecological organization and call it the Johnny Appleseed Society or something like that. And you would know what that conveys because you and I share the same picture of Johnny Appleseed. Now, would anything be spoiled if somebody actually, some historian actually uncovered some information enough to actually write a biography of Johnny Appleseed and he ended up being nothing of the sort of what our picture of him is? Well, not really, because my symbol is not based on the Johnny Appleseed of history. My symbol is based on the Johnny Appleseed of our shared culture and our shared literature and our shared lore and that kind of thing. Same thing is happening here. The Melchizedek that becomes fodder for David's poetic imagination is not the Melchizedek who lived in Salem and was the Jebusite king of a Jebusite city-state. That's not the Melchizedek who's the symbol here. It's the Melchizedek who shows up out of nowhere, gives food and wine to Abraham, and receives a tithe, a tenth of his spoils, and blesses him. That's the Melchizedek we're talking about. So it's very important to keep in mind the distinction between what is actually historically really true of Melchizedek on the one hand and how Melchizedek is presented to us and comes across to us in the extant literature that we're reading, namely Genesis 14 here. Okay. So when Paul makes his argument and he says the priesthood of Melchizedek was without beginning of days or end of life, Do you think Paul is naive enough to think that the priesthood that Melchizedek served never actually had a beginning and never actually had an end? No, of course not. He's dealing with the Genesis account, not the actual historical reality of Melchizedek. It's the lore that has become the symbol for David, and Paul is trying to understand how David is going from the lore about Melchizedek to the symbol. And the same with, and and the other one is not even really important because he's not saying that he didn't have a father and mother in a genealogy. Okay, one last point, and then I'll pause. So also notice in paragraph 32, sentence 2, so this is verse 3, chapter 7, notice how Paul words this. 
he was without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, insofar as he was likened to the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Paul is making it really clear that he doesn't believe Melchizedek remained a priest perpetually. What he's saying is, insofar as he was likened to the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Well, who's the one who's likening him to the Son of God? David in Psalm 110. So what he's saying is, insofar as David chose Melchizedek as a symbol that he turned into, that he made into the likeness of the Son of God, then we can read the account of Melchizedek in a particular kind of way where we notice that his priesthood is perpetual. You follow? So David is making it very clear here that he's interpreting what it is that David did with Melchizedek, not what David did with the Melchizedek of history, but what David did with the Melchizedek of the Genesis 14 account. What did he do with him? He was deliberately trying to transform the Melchizedek of the story into a symbol, a likeness of the Son of God, and that that's what was happening in Psalm 110. Okay? I got an email from Karen asking a question that I want to address now, and then I'll open it up for your further questions. The question she asks is, wouldn't Melchizedek have to be a true believer in Yahweh in order for Abraham to pay tithes to him? Since God is a jealous God who would not allow his name, the Most High God, to be used by any other God, wouldn't Melchizedek have to be an authentic and genuine believer in the same God who had come, appeared to Abraham and blessed him in order for this to be any kind of valid event? And I'm arguing, no, I don't think so. Now, I'm not ruling out the possibility that Melchizedek was some kind of weird anomaly among the Canaanites who really had discovered the same God that Abraham had discovered and was a follower of him. If that's true, that's great. That's fine. I have no problem with that. But we don't have any reason from the text to know and believe that that's the case. And in terms of your question, Karen, it doesn't take away anything from what David is doing in Psalm 110 if Melchizedek is a complete heathen unbeliever, because what Abraham is choosing to respect is a certain role that Melchizedek is playing, not the person. We'll get into this later when he talks about Melchizedek being greater and that kind of thing. Greater in what sense? Do we really think that either David or Paul is suggesting that Melchizedek is a greater person than Abraham or a greater person than Levi or Aaron or a greater person than David, for that matter? Construed in the right kind of way, that's where the logic of Paul's apparent argument would take you. But that can't possibly be what he's saying. It's not the person of Melchizedek that is greater than all these Jews. It's the role that is, ends up being highlighted in Genesis 14. That role is a role that has greater status and greater dignity than anything you'll find among any of the Jews. And what's his argument going to be? There is an individual who's great enough to serve in that role. And it wasn't Melchizedek. It's the coming Son of God. That Son of God will be a person who fills the greatness of the role. 
But Melchizedek is only greater than anybody in view here in the sense that the Genesis 14 story account puts him in a status that Abraham chose to respect, as if Abraham himself were submitting to the superiority of that role over him. Would Abraham submit to the superiority of the Son of God over him? Yeah. And now he's submitting to the greatness of the person in that role. But in the case of Genesis 14, it's just the role that he's submitting to. So anybody can fill that role. A pagan, a heathen, a Jebusite doesn't have to believe in God, doesn't have to know diddly squat about God. And he can still function in the way that he does in the Genesis 14 account. Now, having said that, as you suggested, on the other hand, it wouldn't be at all unlike God to pick out this little lone Jebusite and reveal himself to him and make him a genuine believer as well. So that may very well be, but I don't have any way of knowing that. Okay, let me open it up to your questions. Hey, Jack, do we know if the Most High God that Melchizedek serves, does he remain unnamed or... Well, I haven't investigated this, so I'm, this is just off the top, but it appears to me to be sort of controversial whether we're dealing with names of gods within the pantheon or titles of gods within the pantheon. As you know from the Gilgamesh epic, mm-hmm. it ends with 50 names for Marduk, mm-hmm. but those names sound like titles right. for the most part. So... I'm inclined to think that we're dealing with a title, not a name per se. So it's not like Bill or Jack or Henry, that God. It's the Most High God. And it's entirely possible that the understanding of who the Most High God is on the part of Melchizedek Mm -hmm. could very well be very different than who that God is on the part of Abraham. In fact, if I were betting, I'd bet that's what's going on. Mm -hmm. What Abraham is doing is respecting the role of the one who's a priest to the Most High God, whether or not that dude understands who the Most High God even is. Right. But Abraham knows who that is. Because, right. I mean, if it is, as you're suggesting, more likely that it, it's the title, and it's a, a title and attribute, then it's a lot like Paul in Marketplace right. saying, oh, let me tell you who that God is. The unknown God, yeah. You know, Abraham meeting with this Melchizedek and Melchizedek saying, priest of the Most High God, yeah. and Abraham saying, oh, I know that God. Yeah, exactly. You know, I'm going to honor him through you. Yeah. My other question is, you've, you've said a couple of times that, that you believe that David's understanding of the son who is to come, his role as a priest, had to have been through prophetic revelation. So I don't know if there's anything writing on this, but I'm, I would love to know if you think or if you don't think that it may have been possible for David, having had the information that he did have about the promise and what that's going to look like, if he could have reasoned out and worked out for himself, oh, this king who's going to be an eternal king over an eternal kingdom, he's going to have to solve this huge problem, death and sin. He's going to have to solve this problem. And what's the only way that he's going to be able to do that? I wonder if that's a way that he could have come to this. Yeah, I can't rule that out. I just don't know my scripture well enough, and I'm not smart enough to do that myself. But could David have done that? Yeah, it may very well be. I would still say that's based on revelation. It's just he's pulling out the ramifications of the revelation that he's received. But that's a good distinction. Is it a direct revelation, the Messiah will be a priest? 
or is it based on all the direct revelation that we are aware of that he got? Was he able to extrapolate from that and kind of infer that, well, he's also going to have to serve as a priest? I'm inclined to think not, but I can't rule that out. I think that's a very real possibility. I may just not know enough to know how he would have made that argument. Yeah. Thanks, Jack. Are you seeing any meaning in the phrase, according to the order of, that's possibly a technical meaning, or are you seeing it used just as, just like Melchizedek or similar to Melchizedek? I'm sorry, I didn't hear the last part. Are you seeing any sort of technical meaning to the phrase, or is it just expressing a similarity? I didn't investigate that. I wonder the same thing. What would be interesting is to go to the Old Testament and find out, does the same word in Hebrew get used with respect to the tribes were divided, the Levites and the priests were divided into, what I don't know if they call them, divisions or something like that. Is the word that's used somehow similar to or recalling or appear to be a technical designation for a kind of priest? And I don't know the answer to that. I don't think it matters because I think it's clear what Paul is saying is whether it's a technical term or not a technical term, the point that he's making is it's a different kind of priest. It has a different authorization. It has a different sanction than does the priesthood under the Mosaic Covenant. So that's what's implied by the word, whether it's out of a technical meaning or not, I I don't actually know. That's a good question. That was one of my questions too, because there was no precedent for Levi to be a priest. That was appointed. Right. His, neither his father nor his grandfather. So that was point zero for the priesthood. For the, but it's not inexplicable. Right. Right. Okay. And so in Jesus, he goes on to make the point of the tribe of Judah. He's not born into the priesthood either. Right. But God appoints him right. a priest forever. Right. It seems to me that's what he's getting at with the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek was appointed by God, not because of his lineage, but because of his faith which Abraham probably recognized. Now, you said Melchizedek. Do you mean the one that is foreshadowed by Melchizedek? The one that Abraham met on his way back from the slaughter. Because if he refers to him, this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, in one hand, he could just be reiterating the narrative from Genesis, or he could be pointing out that, by golly, he really was the priest of the Most High God. And how did he get there? Well, he could either be like Noah, who was contacted by God and told to be this. He was appointed to his priesthood the same way Levi was appointed to his priesthood, the same way Jesus was appointed to his priesthood, that what they are are uh, statements of God's will and statements of God's approval. Mm -hmm. Because we know there are a lot of dirtbag priests that came after Levi. Um, But nonetheless, there were good men who came after Levi Mm -hmm. that were priests. Their priesthood was ceremonial, whereas Melchizedek's priesthood was real, and Jesus is more real. But it's because of the appointment by God, and that's his point. Okay. That's not how I'm reading it. That's possible, and that would be a way we could read it. But I'm not seeing Melchizedek's priesthood as real. I think it's just as ceremonial and shadowy as is the Levitical priesthood. But he's taking the fact that there's this earthly priest that Abraham submitted to that now then can become a picture of an eternal reality where it's no longer the shadow, but it's the substance of what God is doing. That's very definitely what he's doing. But I don't think the Melchizedek... See, the Genesis account does not say that Melchizedek was appointed. And interestingly, Paul doesn't say that he was appointed. got four things already that he's drawing in parallel between Jesus and Melchizedek 
if he thought Melchizedek was appointed by God himself directly, why not that one too? Why Maybe don't you that's point the that meaning of the order of Melchizedek. Sorry? Maybe that's what the order of Melchizedek Okay, means. if you read that into that phrase. yeah, Because it's unique. Yeah. Whereas the Levitical priesthood goes from person to person to person, and he makes that point later on. This one's unique. Okay. Well, you got it uniquely. It remains uniquely. It is forever uniquely right. Jesus' will. I'm reading the order of Melchizedek as part of the poetry. I don't think it's a metaphysical reality. I don't think you can ever find anyone who ever has been appointed to the order of Melchizedek because I don't think the order of Melchizedek exists anywhere. That's what I'm saying. The okay. order is not like some uh, Masonic order, oh. but it's rather the position of Melchizedek or the role of Melchizedek according to the role or according oh, to having been appointed by God. He didn't inherit this. I it see. wasn't given okay. to him by someone. Okay. How could he be a priest to the Most High God before the law and before the ceremonial roles of a priest, before even Levi was born? What would a priest do right. with the Most High God unless it's something universal to priesthood as they understood it? Was it prayer? Was it intercession? Was it serving in a temple? Was it education? Or was it being a witness, a public guy you could point to and say, there, now, maybe I'm misunderstanding you, but you're gravitating toward taking his role more seriously than I am. I think he's a Jebusite priest who did what Jebusite priests did in relation to the God who's the top God in their pantheon. I think that's what he did. So why would Abraham feel obligated to give him a tenth because that tenth was intended for God, not for Melchizedek? Exactly. So he would have to assume this is going to get to God through Melchizedek, he's the guy I can see to it that God, you see what I'm saying? Well, does it have to get to God or does it have to be honored by God as an act of love and service to him? And how would it be of service to him if it didn't somehow? Because of the heart of the worshiper. Which I think that's who Melchizedek was, a worshiper. You see what I'm saying? Like, You're trying to get me to say something no, I'm not going to say. Yeah, but see, it's a model that makes sense. Go do what God would have you do with this stuff, whether it's feed the poor, you know, give alms to the widows and orphans. There's just the end of the war, by the way. But see, I think that <laughs> undermines the point he's making in Hebrews 7, because I think the, thing, the question you're answering is exactly the question that Genesis 14 screams at you. Abraham, why would you give a tenth of what's owed to God to him? Who is his mother? Who is his father? What priesthood is he serving? If the answer is... He was a true worshiper of the living God. You've got your answer. Why is there a question then? But what makes him a priest? Yeah, but... Appointment? Like with Levi? It would have to be appointment by God, yeah. Yeah. But see, I don't think that's where Paul's going with it. I think he recognizes it as a real, inexplicable mystery that becomes fodder then, becomes available to David to create this symbol out of. Not because Melchizedek is anything, but because Melchizedek can be used as a symbol of somebody who's a big deal, Jesus. So, well, we can talk about it later. I'm, now I'm flashing on verse 11. Yeah, we'll get there. I think I'm following what you say that David is doing. What's not clear to me is how Genesis chapter 14 should be interpreted in its own right. Okay. So, and just one thing in particular, should a reader of Genesis 14 pay any attention to the fact that there's no genealogy or no mother or no father? Or has that all been invested into it by David using his creative imagination? Well, it depends what you mean by without father, without mother, without genealogy. If what we mean is 
we are not told who his father is. We are not told who his mother is. We are not told what his genealogy. I think it would be bizarre to read anything into that because there's all kinds of people that we encounter in the Old Testament where we don't know who their father is. We don't know who their mother. We don't know who their genealogy is. Why don't I know? Because they didn't tell me. That's why I don't know. I don't assume that they don't have one. Right. But not many of those are priests. They aren't called priests at all. Right. And therefore... Well, generally a priest we assume that there is a basis on which they oh, have yeah. become a priest. Right, exactly. Right. And so, yeah, that's what I'm saying is what I think Paul means by without father, without mother, without genealogy is he doesn't have any qualifications to be a priest that we are given, that we are made aware of. And I think in interpreting Genesis, yes, I think Paul is saying that's striking. That is very striking. So that in reading Genesis 14, a question that I don't think we could ever answer adequately But a question that screams at us is, why on earth does Abraham think he's qualified? I think that's there in Genesis. And I I don't know if you want to take the time now, but going into how you would understand the passage in Genesis would be helpful to me because I'm not sure what it's contributing to this. Okay, what questions have I not answered about that? Well, as we're reading Genesis... Why is this event in there at all? Why would Moses include this? Why is Abraham doing what he's doing? Why doesn't he give a tenth to somebody else? Why does he give it to Melchizedek? Why is Melchizedek named Melchizedek? Why is he the prince of Salem? I think you said last week that it didn't matter where he was the priest. That in, David the, in the historical account. Right, yeah. in the historical account. Right. But David picks up on that and uses it. Right, right. But in the Genesis account, that wouldn't matter. Right, okay, that that wouldn't matter. That may be an overstatement. I don't know that we can say it wouldn't matter at all, that there's no... The fact that Salem eventually becomes Jerusalem, that, yeah, maybe there's something significant about that. My point is that playing the role that he's playing, if the Jebusites, by an accident of history, had made their city-state in some other place other than the place that ultimately became Jerusalem, it would still be the same story, and it would still have the same significance in the life of Abraham. It just wouldn't make all the same connections that it does because it's Jerusalem. And I wouldn't rule out those connections being... That gets into an author, and now I'm thinking of God as the author of history, can put connections in place that are interesting, even though they are not meaningful to anybody but God. I can't do anything with them. I can't decide something from it. I can't infer anything from it. But after the fact, once I have understood the meaning and I look back on it, I go, wow, that was curious. That was interesting. So I think there is that. It is curious. He's from Jerusalem. Yeah, it gets difficult to sort out what is Moses, the author of Genesis, doing there? What is he intending? And what is God, the author of history, who's put this whole scenario together? What is he doing with that? Yeah. Setting up with that. Yeah, and that's a very important question. It's going to be increasingly become an important question in our culture, I think, because in the academic world of Bible scholarship and stuff, they love to talk about echoes, and they used to be fundamentalists called them types. They just changed the name and call them echoes now. But echoes and anticipations and connections and that kind of thing. But I can see where they're coming from. Where the academic biblical scholarship is coming from is they don't believe any of this stuff is true. At least they think about it as if it's not true. It's all a human artifact. It's what the author of some narrative is doing with the information in the text. Without sufficient respect for 
what else is Genesis supposed to do but say he's the king of Salem? Because he was like the king of Salem. That's why you call him the king of Salem. It's actually a historical fact, which puts all the connection on God, not on the author. And we have to be really, really careful that we make that distinction and don't start treating the Bible the way the academics do. This is all made up anyway. So what difference does it make if I point out the ingenuity of the biblical author? Well, sometimes the biblical author is not exercising ingenuity. He's just telling you what happened. And if that has meaning above and beyond, that's on God, not on the ingenuity of the human author. And I think it's very important to keep that distinction in mind. Um. So you've made it clear that you don't and you don't know that anybody else has an answer to the question, why would Abraham behave towards, I'm not sure if I can say his name, starts with an M, um, the, the way he did. So we don't really know that. We don't know exactly Yeah, the text doesn't tell us. Why. Yeah, the tech, okay. All we could possibly do is speculate. I do have a speculation, but that's all it is. Okay. And so then, I think you've said this, but I'm just trying to put it together again. What does David think is significant about Abraham's behavior, and then Paul does as well. Well, the thing that David thinks is significant about Abraham's behavior is that he is allowing to act as an intercessor between him and his God, somebody who wouldn't even be qualified to be a priest at all under the Mosaic Covenant. And Paul likes... that's significant, and that's worth talking about here. Well, because what does David do with that? David then comes along and says, the Messiah is coming. Who's the Messiah? He's the son of David. David's of the tribe of Judah. No priests have ever come out of the tribe of Judah. They can't. They're not qualified. So there's somebody coming who's going to be the Messiah, who's from the tribe of Judah and is not qualified to be a priest, but he's going to function as a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, another non-qualified priest functioning as a priest. And so... What David is doing is using that fact as a likeness or a symbol of who the Messiah is going to be. Because the Messiah, when he comes, is going to serve the role of an eternal priesthood as the Messiah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Just one other quick question. In your translation, verse 31 of part 12, it says, In the first place he was, by translation, king of righteousness. What does that mean? Well, Melchizedek comes from two Hebrew words, melech, which means king, and sadiq, which means righteous, sadiqah, righteousness. He's the king of righteousness. That's what the name in Hebrew would translate into. Asking why is that significant? Sure. Well, very simply, I think he's saying Paul is betting, Paul is concluding that one of the things about the Genesis 14 account that made David turn this particular figure into a symbol of the Messiah priest who is to come was, look at his name. Look how appropriate that name would be for a Messiah priest, King of Righteousness, King of Shalom. Hi, Jack. I just had a few thoughts about the priesthood of Melchizedek, which I'm interested to hear what you think about. Okay. And they probably don't really affect your argument very much either. Now, it seems like the Canaanites at this point are not necessarily completely wicked because God sends them down to Egypt for 400 years until the wickedness is complete. Okay. It seems like at the time of Abraham, the Canaanites are more of a mixed bag. You have Abimelech who says to God, would you kill a righteous nation? And God says, I know you're innocent, but you're still in trouble. So it seems like Abraham meets a lot of good Canaanites, and obviously he meets a lot of bad Canaanites. 
Now, the Canaanites are, like everybody else, all descendants of Noah, who is a true worshiper of God. So it would make sense that they would have some memory of the true worship of God, though not as, in as much detail as Abraham, because God is using Abraham to reveal more. So it makes sense that there was this memory of the true worship of God that over time becomes corrupted, and eventually became corrupted enough that God annihilates them. And so in Canaanite mythology, you have El, uh, but then you have Baal and things like that. It seems possible that El is the memory of that true God. And over time, they add more gods and their worship becomes more and more corrupt. So all that's to say is it seems like Melchizedek, it's possible that either he's still in the line of true memory of the worship of God, even if it's something that has been diluted, he's worshiping El. And even if it's been distorted, Abraham is saying, El is the God that is the true God. Because the Canaanites use the name El, and it's interesting that the Bible doesn't forsake the name El for God, but they continue to clarify what, who he is. Yeah, thank you. That's good. And that might support, back to your question, Karen, yeah, could Melchizedek be one of those Canaanites who preserves a memory? And what would seem more likely to me, what you have to recognize, though, is he's not just an isolated individual. He's the king of Salem and the priest to the Most High God in Salem. He's got a whole civilization that he's responsible for, that he's serving, and so on. And so is the whole city-state right with the right God? I'd find that not very plausible at this point, but maybe. But what does seem likely is what you just described, is he's the priest of the Most High God. Even if they have a pantheon, the Most High God could very well be the God who's been handed down from Noah, as you say. So he's worshiping the one God in the pantheon that he might very well believe in, but his commitment and his service is to the one God who is the same God that Abraham is worshiping. I don't even think Abraham's a monotheist at this point. He's likely a polytheist as well, but Yahweh is drawing him out and focusing his attention on the relationship that God has with Abraham and the promises that he's promising Abraham and getting him to commit to that. So... Yeah, it's very possible that Abraham and Melchizedek are roughly in the same place. I think that is possible. But you're right, as I say, but I don't think his argument hinges on that at all. Okay, we'll continue this next week.